This morning, I have a, an interesting conversation I want to lead us through. It's something that, that I've been thinking through and trying to piece together. It's going to build a little bit on what Pastor Ian talked about a few weeks ago. Pastor Ian, over the last couple of weeks, uh, talked about a theology of the body. And that's something that we've kind of lost, maybe in our uh, modern Western evangelicalism, but that is, uh, is thoroughly Christian and thoroughly Orthodox Christian. Pastor Ian, a few weeks ago, uh, few weeks ago taught us about um, a few ideas that have always been present, especially in contrast to a Christian theology of the body. He talked about um, the idea of Gnosticism being this, um, this philosophy that separates the body from the spirit or the soul and says that the body, the physical world, and the physical universe is, is bad and is corrupt and, and what's perfect and good and holy is um, some sort of like disembodied spirit self. And, and a lot of religions, a lot of philosophies try to break apart the physical world with the world of ideas and the spirit and, and suggest that the, that the, um, the means to, to, to fulfillment and goodness and perfection is actually ridding ourselves of the physical altogether. That's why monks, they get rid of everything and they just meditate all day. That's the, 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 goal, of, um, the goal of nirvana is basically a, 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 a detachment from all desire uh, altogether, including any kind of desire that permeates the physical world. And, and so that's Gnosticism. And sometimes Christians get caught up in Gnostic thinking. We you see the language of the flesh and the spirit, and we think that what Paul is describing is the physical versus the disembodied spiritual. But that is not a Christian view of the world. That is not a Christian view of uh, the kingdom of God. It is not a Christian perspective on where we're heading and what we ought to be aiming at. There's a couple breakaways from that that Pastor Ian told us about. One was Epicureanism and one was Stoicism. Does anybody remember that at all or remember what those things mean? An Epicurean way of thinking is um, that the answer to life and fulfillment in life is just to step into the desires of the flesh and enjoy them. It's where you get the idea of hedonism from. Why would we fight against the flesh? We should just step into it. Whatever is there for our pleasure, we should just step into that and enjoy it because life is meant to be um, fulfilled through physical pleasures, right? So that's, that's Epicureanism. And I know you're probably thinking about even modern ideas and, and worldviews and connecting them to that. Uh, Epicureanism is, is, is just, uh, it's been repackaged for years and years and years and years and has been again repackaged today. But the idea of just do whatever makes you feel good is uh, it's a very Epicurean way of thinking. And then that's contrasted with the Stoics. The Stoics historically were the ones who thought that, that, the, that the means towards fulfillment and meaning in your life is to pursue um, the, the, uh, an idea, is, is to pursue. It's, it's kind of the, the life of the mind is ultimately the pathway towards meaning and fulfillment. And so you can think of that through the lens of like studying philosophy, kind of the growth of the philosophical practice was, was, um, was, a, was a very stoic movement, which was that um, life is most meaningful when we achieve some sort of thought life or understanding of the world uh, through the mind, right? Those are kind of two kind of separate ways to approach meaning and fulfillment and to pursue the kingdom of God in some kind of way and that have um, historically dominated and, and continue to dominate um, today. And what I want to tell you this morning is what Ian told us a few weeks ago, which is that neither of those uh, pathways are, are, 
are a Christian pathway. Neither of those pathways are, 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 are um, aligned with the Judeo-Christian pursuit of the kingdom of God. Something that's really beautiful and unique about the Christian faith and, and also about the Jewish faith, but more particularly about the Christian faith, and I'll tell you a little bit more about that, is that we actually have a very robust theology of the body, a very robust theology of embodiment. We actually believe that God created the world and he created it good. And so it can't be bad. Everything physical that God created can't be bad. Our goal isn't to kind of distance ourselves from the created world. God made it good and he said it was good. And so that can't be the goal and trying to distance ourselves away from that. But we also have a thorough um, theology of the flesh, which is the idea that, the, that, the, that there are physical pleasures and desires that we all have, and that when we live into those things, it doesn't usually produce life and life to the full. It usually produces death. We're actually going to see Romans 6 today talk about that pretty explicitly. My hope today in our conversation is that we lead to a point where when we're unpacking Romans 6, it becomes way more understandable to you than when you first read it. Because if any Anyone's familiar with the entire book of Romans, let alone Romans 6 through 8. You've probably read it countless times and maybe even studied it at seminary and you still have no idea what, what the Apostle Paul is saying. And my hope is that today we'll clarify a few things there for us. Today's morning talk or sermon or whatever you want to call this time, um, I've titled The Lost Ark of Consecration. The Lost Ark of Consecration. Um, reason I called it this two reasons. One, this is just a fun play on words, right? The lost art of consecration is what I was aiming at, and then Pastor Ian thought I said the lost ark of consecration, and, and that connected to the, um, what's that TV uh, movie series with that famous guy? What's that? Indiana Jones? I lost everyone, didn't I? I unapologetically don't care for Star Wars or Indiana Jones. I know. You can get up and walk out now. I know. I don't know anything about it. I don't know anything about it. Um, I don't want to age myself or age you, but I kind of grew up a little bit past that um, peak, and uh, I think there's just way better and more interesting TV and movie to watch. Anyway, I, I don't want to lose you here, but it was... Playing on the words a little bit, the lost ark of consecration. This doesn't normally happen. I don't normally sermon prep this way, where I come up with some silly pun title or something like that, and and uh, and then build a whole theology out of it. That's that's a bad way of studying the Bible and teaching it for sure. And uh, but today, uh, while there was a, there was a there was a connection, just playing with this a little bit, the lost ark of consecration. It brought me to um, consider the the ark of the covenant, which is a very Jewish idea. We're going to talk about what that is, what that means. Some of you are familiar, many of you guys aren't. And, uh, and then we're going to connect it to consecration and the idea of fasting as consecration. And, and my hope is today that, that, that I actually get somewhere useful um, in this conversation because I'm, I'm still piecing some things together. But, but there was something that was really, really interesting in it all. And I hope that you can go there with me as I unpack it this morning. I imagine I will fail, uh, fall dramatically short of the goal this morning, which is to... Um, to offer something coherent in the direction of connecting the Ark of the Covenant with fasting. But uh, if you give me enough time, I think we can probably get there this morning. What is the Ark of the Covenant? The Ark of the Covenant was and would be today uh, one of the most, if not the most, sacred religious symbols and relics in the Jewish faith. And even that of many Christians today. This is a picture of it here. 
Now, it's mostly Protestants in the room. I'm assuming if you attend this church, you most likely grew up Protestant or you've been attending a Protestant church for a while or you don't even know what that means, which would probably make you Protestant-leaning. Most of us don't have a box to make sense of relics. Most of us don't have a category in our mind that we understand where to place relics because we're, well, presumably good Protestants. But the reality is that most religious people globally uh, have a box or a place to put relics in their mind. If you use the language of relics, they, they place it somewhere and it's meaningful and significant to them. My wife and I, a few years ago when we were pregnant with Winona, our four-year-old, we traveled to Amsterdam, well, to the Netherlands actually. And uh, my, my, my mom's family is from the Netherlands, and so I'm half Dutch, and, and I got the chance to show my wife the motherland. I had been once before when I was maybe in junior high, and so this was really fun for me, too, to see it as an adult and to explore it as an adult. And we're traveling all over the Netherlands. We're seeing basically everything you can, which is not that much. It's the Netherlands. That's, that's why they all leave and go everywhere else, because there's not a whole lot of land there. And uh, anyway, so the Dutch, we're, we're exploring all, all the Dutch lands. And, and when we saw, we were Googling things, there was one place we wanted to visit, and it, and it wasn't in the Netherlands. Uh, forgive me, the Dutch people in the room, but, but the place we were most interested in visiting was actually a place in Belgium called uh, Bruges or Brugge or something like that. I don't know as people pronounce it in different ways. And, and in Bruges, there was this, this beautiful, just this picturesque place with this beautiful canal. And it was just like one of those things where you're like, that's made out of a movie. We got to go there. And then we also discovered that there was a, a movie that was uh, based on this town. It's, uh, what was that called? Colin, what's the guy's name? I'm really good at pop culture. In Bruges was the name of the movie. What was the actor's name? Colin something we all know. Colin Farrell, is that who it is? Okay. You're laughing at me, Andrew. Am I embarrassing myself with pop culture references? Okay. I take that as a compliment. Um, yes, yeah, so there's a movie about it. And not that any of that matters, but um, we were there... And one of the top destinations to visit was this church. Does anybody know what this church is? This church was called the Basilica of Christ's Blood. The Basilica of Christ's Blood presumably is this church that has this relic in it that um, is the actual blood of Jesus. So we like, got to go see that, right? So we go in and, it, you know, it's kind of unassuming. It's in this town square. And when you walk in, it's this beautiful place, but there's this lineup of people all lined up to see this relic. Go to the next picture, you'll see it. And, and, and apparently, according to somebody, there's the blood of Jesus in there. Now, you and I are probably, like, good Protestants, kind of skeptical of whether or not that is the blood of Jesus. Don't just say, this is the blood of Jesus, right? It's a pretty good money-making scheme. People are lining up, paying money, to just go look at this thing and to be blessed by its presence, now, my wife and I were good Protestants, so we did not spend the money on going up to it. We just watched all the people go up to it, and we just thought negative things about their religious practice, because that's what a good Protestant would do. But it was like this really interesting experience for us as followers of Jesus, as believers, to, to see the weight and the meaning that Christians, brothers and sisters in Christ, put into a relic, like a can that maybe has a piece of clothing that maybe has the blood of Jesus, but probably doesn't. It was so meaningful. People travel from all over the world to go see this thing. 
So just like you probably this morning, we don't really have a category to place relics. But most other religious people for most of time have had a category for that. A relic essentially is a representation or an object that represents the manifestation of something good or holy or meaningful. It's a, it's a thing that has sentimental value and it, and it carries a weight to it. Oftentimes it's like a, it's a, it's an item from historical past or connects to some sort of like story, maybe in a people's history or religious history in some kind of way. And so you can imagine if, you know, we, we had a category for relics, well, seeing the blood of Jesus, our Savior, would be meaningful because it, because it connects us back to a time, but also to the meaning of a thing that happened. And we're, we're actually going to, today, celebrate communion. We're going to observe communion, and it's kind of the same kind of thing, although a little bit different, and it'll be nice to get there. But the Ark of the Covenant, to get back to where we were, is um, the most sacred relic from the time of the Jewish exile out of Egypt into the desert and on to the Promised Land. The story is found in Exodus 25. I'm not going to read the story because that would just take forever. For those who know the story, you'll know some of the things I'm referencing. For those who don't, it's a worthwhile story to understand because what I'm learning more and more and more as I grow in my faith and my understanding of the Judeo-Christian faith, the more I'm realizing that there's so much that I, that I misunderstand about the Old Testament and the story of God through Israel that actually helps me understand Jesus far better. So it's a worthwhile read. But essentially, um, you have in Exodus 25, you've got uh, Moses receiving um, instructions on how to build this Ark of the Covenant is what it was. And what this Ark of the Covenant was meant to do was actually meant to house and protect the two tablets that had the Ten Commandments on it. So some of you guys know your, your Exodus history. You know that uh, the story goes that Moses went up on Mount Sinai and received the Ten Commandments from God in the form of two tablets. And the whole Jewish community built their entire existence around this law, the two tablets that included the Ten Commandments. And then what came after that was this decision to build these things or a command from God to build these things to house this set of tablets that the whole community was formed around. And so that's what the Ark of the Covenant is. It's really just a really beautiful box, but it's way more than just a box. I'll tell you a little bit about the details on it. The details are that the box was supposed to uh, be made of uh, acacia wood overlaid with gold. The cover was supposed to be made out of pure gold. The poles were made out of acacia coated gold and you can see for the purpose of being able to carry with them wherever they went and what you see on the top is you see these two angel-like figures they're called cherubim and and uh, they're kind of their arms are out but they're they're facing in like this and uh, what it was believed was that God actually dwelt in the middle of their two wings just off of the surface of the cover that's where God would meet with Moses you can imagine the significant meaning that was in that. And then later on in the story, Moses, he was given this instruction to build this tabernacle. And the tabernacle ultimately was the place that would house the Ark 
of the covenant. This is a, an example of what the tabernacle would have looked like according to the instructions given by God to Moses to build it. Wherever the people of Israel, the people of God would go, the Jews would go, they would build a tabernacle so that they could properly store the Ark of the Covenant. Now this was such a special relic, such a meaningful relic, such a um, powerful relic that it was actually believed that it was the dwelling place of the living God. It was the place actually where the Israelites met with God. And it was so powerful and it was so meaningful that not anybody could actually approach the Ark of the Covenant in the tabernacle. So you see the room there that's divided. There's a curtain here. And you see the Ark of the Covenant is in this back room. That space is called the Holy of Holies. And that space was the space where only a few people could go in order to commune with God because we believe that that was the place where God actually met humanity. That was the place where God dwelt. And, and there was a whole ritual behind being able to go into that space. It's fascinating stuff. It's interesting stuff. Beautiful stuff. And we believe as Christians that this was actually God ordained. This is what he told the people to do. And there was a purpose to that. And so we believe that that is where God actually dwelt. It was the bridge between humankind and God. It was the most holy of places that existed because it was the portal, essentially, to God. And it was only the priestly tribe who could go in there after ceremonial and ritualistic washing. It was believed that this tabernacle was the house of the Lord. It was the dwelling place. It was where the Spirit of God was manifest in physical form. I'm telling you all this for a reason. So the Ark of the Covenant and the Holies of Holies, it was consecrated. It was set apart. It was sacred space. It was consecrated to, and devoted uh, to the single means of worshiping and communing with God. It was dedicated to that purpose. And it was blessed in the most deeply meaningful way. You can imagine the place where the infinite God of the universe dwelt in his creation would be the most meaningful and significant place. It was also thought to be the bridge between the finite and the infinite, us in the creation being the finite and God being the infinite. And it was the bridge towards that. It was the bridge between the broken and perfection. It was the bridge between the righteous and the unrighteous. It was the bridge between uh, the New Testament languages, the flesh and the spirit. It was the most sacred of all places. And in the middle of it, remember what was housed in the Ark of the Covenant was the law, the Ten Commandments, the two tablets. And the whole community was organized around this. That's what's so interesting about where it was placed. Not only was it placed in the Holy of Holies in the temple, but the temple was placed in the middle of the community. Everything that Israel did was around the center of the temple, around the center of the Holy of Holies, around the center of the Ark of the Covenant, around the center of the law that God gave to Moses. 
in Israel's pursuit of the promised land, in Israel's pursuit of the kingdom of God, wherever they went, they would carry these things and build these things so that wherever it was they were on the way to the promised land, the center of the community was the law given to Moses. And this tends to be true of all worshiping communities. You can see this across all worshiping communities. If you grew up in another part of the world, I spent a little bit of, Thailand, a little bit of time in Thailand recently, and, and there's relics everywhere, right? There's temples everywhere. I actually couldn't believe when I was in Laos that like a country and a city that's not that wealthy, every other city block was this, this majestic temple. And the idea was that the people organized themselves around that which has been consecrated or that which has been set apart as holy. And, and so this is a very human thing to do. Every major religion does it. It's why we worship idols. It's why we build temples. It's why we build churches. It's why we build mosques. And it's why they're so meaningful and significant. And it's why people are fighting wars over a plot of land. You can understand that now. Sometimes in the Western Protestant framework, we don't get it. But for everyone else in the world, they get it. Because it's things and places that are deemed holy, that are consecrated as holy, that are set apart. The question we need to ask ourselves in the West is like, what is it, what do we consecrate as holy? What have we as a culture consecrated, said this is untouchable, this is holy, you can't mess with this. This is the thing that we organize ourselves around. This is the thing that we organize ourselves around so that if we organize ourselves around this thing, we as a community will walk towards, stumble our way towards the kingdom of God. What are those things in our community and in our culture? In Milton, Ontario, what do we as a community of people organize ourselves around? That'll tell you what our actual religion is. Asking the question of what's at the center will answer the question of what it is that we actually worship. And I'm not sure in Milton if we really want to answer that question. I think we'd be uncomfortable actually answering that question as a community. It's an interesting community. We're so diverse, we'd probably say there's a million answers to that question because there's not really one thing. And I would suggest that we ought to be aiming at one thing. So then this comes, the new, uh, we, come, we have the New Testament, and we want to ask the question, what does the New Testament say about all this? And I hope that you're with me still, and I hope you're tracking with me while the thunder roars above. Janice actually told me ahead of time, thank you, Janice. They never tell me ahead of time when they're going to be doing chaotic things up there, and she did this morning, so I'm expecting it, and it's not distracting, even though it's distracting. Obviously, we don't have a tabernacle. I mean, this is a beautiful space, but it's not built in accordance with the New Testament or the Old Testament guidelines on the temple or tabernacle. We don't have an Ark of the Covenant with stone tablets. We do have a nice wooden cross that we put pins in, and we think that's purposeful and meaningful to be there. But the question for us is, what about the New Testament? What does Jesus say about all this? Because we don't have those things. We don't organize ourselves in the same way. We need to understand all this in order to actually understand Paul's proper Christology. When we start understanding this, we can start reading things like Romans 6 and many other aspects of Jesus and Paul, Paul's writing and Jesus' words, and understand it 
in far more clear ways. There's so much to say on this, but I'm only going to say a few things this morning so that we get somewhere rather than nowhere. One of the most meaningful aspects of the gospel story that we don't really get and understand if we don't pay attention to this history is that the veil of the Holy of Holies in the temple was torn when Jesus died at Calvary. When you read about the death of Jesus, when Jesus finally died on that cross, one of the things that just snuck right in there is that the veil was torn in the temple. That thing, that curtain, that kept the rest of us out of the presence of God was torn. And the idea there, not just idea but reality, is that because of what happened on the cross now, the presence of the living God is available not just to those who can enter into the Holy of Holies. It's actually available to all of us. The implication with that is that there's no more a place where God dwells. There isn't a place for us to go to find God dwelling. Some of us love nature. Some of us would rather sit and drink a Dr. Pepper and watch TV. I won't say which one I am. But God is present there, but he's also present in Dr. Pepper. Am I right? <laughs> no, I'm kidding. We're talking about that fasting. That's, that's, don't, that's not scripture. Don't take that. There's no more a place where God dwells. There isn't a land, there isn't a temple, there isn't a holy of holies, there isn't an ark of the covenant, and that's the only place God is. The implication of the veil being torn is that God now dwells everywhere. Not just everywhere, though. That's not proper Christian theology. But his presence is manifest and available everywhere. I'm just going to rifle these off, because this is thoroughly New Testament theology. In 2 Corinthians 6.16, it says, what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. In Romans 8, 9, it says, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of God or the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. In 1 Corinthians six nineteen it says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. In 1 Corinthians 3.16, it says, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? In 1 John 3.24, it says, Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given in Matthew 8, 20, 18, 20, you know this one, for two or three are gathered in my name, I am there. The Christian belief is that the Spirit of God dwells in us. Christ made manifest on earth in us through the Spirit's dwelling. Both the individual image bearers of God and in between us as a gathered community. It's why it's proper to say when we are gathered together in the name of Jesus, worshiping that God is dwelling in our midst. That is proper theology. It is unique, but it is thoroughly New Testament. This is where we get the idea 
that we've talked about for a long time and will continue to, which is that Christ should be the center of our lives. For the Israelites and many other religions today, they have another center of their life. For the Israelites, it's the law, it's the temple, it's the place where God communes with humanity. But for us, it's actually the living Christ through the spirit of Christ that dwells in us individually, in us, in a community for those who are in Christ. This is unbelievably profound. We don't understand it because we do not understand how the rest of the world lives and how the rest of the religious systems of the world and history's past works. While the world chases idols and seeks the manifestation of God in places or temples or icons or relics or land, the incredible truth of the gospel is that the manifest presence of God is available to us wherever we are by God's grace through Jesus. That is the distinction, and it is a profound distinction. Now, what did Christ do on the cross that carried this power? What's worth centering our lives on? I just want to give you a few thoughts that aren't the whole thing, but are a piece of the thing. Jesus, the Christ, he faced death, he faced evil, and he faced all the consequences of sin on the cross, and he did so voluntarily so that the sake of the world wouldn't have to experience the consequences of doing them involuntarily. Jesus the Christ, he rejected the kingdom of God, or the kingdom of this world. Rather, he gave himself for the sake of the kingdom of God. Jesus the Christ was himself holy. He himself was set apart. He himself was consecrated. He himself picked up his cross, and he carried it up the hill to Calvary. He carried it right into the depths of hell for the sake of the world. That's what Jesus did. That's his example. That is that is what makes him so holy. He didn't just teach about the idea of the kingdom. He actually made the sacrifice necessary to inaugurate the kingdom and manifest it. Now, when you hear manifest, don't hear like New Age crystal shop behind the store or behind our church here. We're not talking about meaning in rocks here. We're talking about something becoming real, an, ideal be, an idea becoming tangible. Uh, we're talking about practicing what you preach. We're talking about demonstrating a reality, not just thinking about it. That's what Jesus did, and he was the first to do it. Jesus lived it. He embodied consecration. He embodied holiness. He embodied righteousness. He didn't just believe it as an act of cognition. He acted it out. He lived it. And he lived the most holy which was to ultimately give a perfect life as a sacrifice for the sake of the world. This wasn't just an idea. This was, a, this was an act. So this morning, what I want to do for the rest of our time is walk us through Romans chapter 6, piece by piece, and we're going to see a few things here. If you have a Bible, open it to Romans 6. I'm going to have some stuff on the screen that is Romans 6, but you may want to see it in its broader context. I'm starting in Romans 6, verse 3, just because if I cover 1 and 2, there's just a whole conversation to have there that I don't really want to spend time doing this morning, but it's important because it has a prior context to it. So verse 3, it says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that 
Just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like this, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like this. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. There's a voluntary choice here that we're invited into, that following Jesus is an invitation into. And following Jesus isn't anything unless it's this. And that invitation, that voluntary choice that you and I make one time and day by day is to put to death our flesh. Put to death the ways of sin. To put to death our desires that are not leading to the kingdom of life so that we can actually be made alive in the way that Jesus was resurrected and made alive. Verse 7, I want to focus on this. For one who has died has been set free from sin. If we choose death, we no longer are slaves of the death that causes or that sin causes. The framework here, the understanding here is that if death or if sin causes death, if, if destructive patterns of behavior and following bad ideas leads to a life of not fulfillment but to a death, if it leads to a life of misery and, and purposeless, then when we put to death our flesh, we will be made alive in Christ. We are voluntarily dying to that so that we are free from the consequences of it because there is no consequences. We've chosen the consequence. Do you see how that works? You've already chosen death. There's nothing to be afraid of. There's nothing to lose here. You're free now because you chose it. For those who have died have been set free. You've got nothing to lose. There's nothing to fear anymore. To make this light but maybe clear, choosing to move on from fandom of the Toronto Maple Leafs is to be set free. Right? Dave, you're with me here, right? You're like, oh, this all came together. I get it. I get it. We struggle. We angst year after year. It just causes us death. We put our hopes and anticipation and misery and failure and sadness. Matthew scores a hat trick and we can't win. It's, it's one of those things where it's like, why do we do that to ourselves? And guess what? We can voluntarily choose to not Support the least. We can choose to do that. Not that we will, but we can choose that. And guess what? You'll watch these games and you won't feel the pain that you used to feel. You will feel and experience eternal life, right? Life to the full. Wow. I finally chose to follow the Boston Bruins. And look at this, right? <laughs> Not that any of us are insane enough to do that, but you see what I'm saying with the freedom? Like, when you choose the death, Oh, I've already given up on that. I've already said no to that. I'm not going there anymore. That doesn't matter to me anymore. I don't need that for my own purpose and fulfillment. I don't need that for my own identity anymore. I don't need that achievement. I don't need that level of wealth. I don't need that material thing. I don't need it anymore. I've already killed it. I don't have to go and attain it and achieve it and then to feel the emptiness and death at the end of it. I've already killed it. It's dead. It has no grip on me. I'm free. I'm made alive. That's what Paul's saying. And he's saying that's what Jesus did. And when we follow Jesus in that, 
voluntary death to the self that is only when we experience eternal life and true life and life to the full. We'll keep reading. You'll see it. In verse 8, now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. He can't die again. He voluntarily chose that. And because of that, he was resurrected and he cannot die again. That's the, that's, that's the belief. That's the Christology. And if we choose that, we will not have to fear death because there is life, eternal life and life to the full. He goes on to say in verse 10, he says, For death has died, or for, for the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lived, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your moral bodies anymore to make you obey its passions. Don't present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you're not under the law. You're not following the law. You're not looking for your fulfillment and your meaning through the law and through your practices that you're used to and through your you know, achievement goals and through your status. You're not looking for it anymore. You got nothing to lose here. You're living in grace. And therefore, sin has no dominion over you. The desires of your flesh have no dominion over you. You chose to put those to death already. That's the point. In verse 15, it says, what then? Are we to sin if we're no longer under the law, but under grace? By no means. It's a question, well, if I'm saved by grace, do I sin anymore? He's like, no, no, that's not, you're missing it entirely. It's not a one-time thing. You've chosen to put to death your flesh so that you can be made alive to Christ. You continue to choose to put that to death so that you can experience life and life eternal. That's what grace is. It says in verse 16, Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching you to which you were committed. He's saying the choice to put to death the self, the flesh, is a choice to now become a slave to God. No longer live as a slave to your flesh, which you all know does not produce life and life to the full. You gain, you gain, you gain, you're still miserable. You pursue that relationship, it falls empty. You struggle with that addiction over and over again because you're looking to find fulfillment in the pleasures of the flesh and immediately after it you're feeling shame. There's no life there. He's saying the decision to put yourself to death and follow Jesus in the pathway of carrying your cross up to Calvary means now you're a slave to God and his ways. But thanks be to God that you were once slaves of sin and have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching you were once committed. And having been set free from sin, having become slaves of righteousness, I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. But just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. Wow. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to your righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at the time from the things that you are now ashamed? 
what fruit was being produced in your life. You felt free from the standard of righteousness. You just lived in accordance with your flesh. You chose that path. But the question, and the question we all have to ask, because maybe you have a different answer, but I'm not sure it would be that different if we really boiled everything down, is that the fruit of freedom from righteousness does not actually really produce life and life to the full that we're seeking after, that we long for, that is the kingdom of God. Being free in regard to righteousness, the idea there is you don't even know any better or you just excuse it, you set it aside, you just live in accordance with your pleasures, but everyone who has ever done that and continues to do that knows that that is not what produces fruit. You know that in your own life because you keep doing it and you keep finding yourself ashamed and you keep finding yourself miserable, you keep finding yourself unfulfilled because of these pursuits that don't lead to life and life to the full. And it's only the decision to put to death that way and be made alive in Christ and pursue the ways of Jesus and life of the kingdom that we actually find life and life fulfilled and life to the full. And that's where we have the last few verses that we are familiar with. But now that you've been set free from sin and become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So to sum it all up, the lost Ark of the Covenant might possibly be in Protestant tradition in the West the lost art of consecrating our whole selves to God. If we are the temple that God dwells within, then we are to offer ourselves individually and collectively to be instruments of his righteousness. That's what this teaches. And if we do so, we will become holy. That's what it means to be holy. As Christ is formed in us, we further embody the presence of the living God. And as we do so, the community that is organized around us stumbles onward towards the kingdom of God. Because the place God dwells is not the temple, it's right here in our midst. And we will fail our way on the path towards the kingdom if we decidedly put to death our flesh to be made alive in God. We as a church could be anywhere, but we happen to be in the middle of this town, in the center of the community. Ivy Arms is the culture hub of this town. I don't know what that says about us, but it is, right? And I'm not that mad about it, because I'm going to get some Ivy Arms for lunch. My four-year-old was asking us yesterday, Daddy, can we go to Ivy Arms for lunch? I was thinking, I don't know, is that a good thing? Is that a bad thing? What does that say about us as parents, me as a pastor? doesn't really matter. We're going and we're eating some wings and it's going to be glorious. But the point is, we're right in the middle of this town. God has put us here. And I think he's put us here for a reason. It is really interesting to think about God dwelling in the center and his presence being the thing that the community ought to be organized around. And that's the invitation for us as a community. That's the invitation for us as followers of Christ, is for Christ to be formed in us and formed in us so that this town is actually gathered around the presence of God living in you and living in us collectively so that the kingdom of God can be fumbled towards, can be struggled together in the direction of for this town. 
That's the way God designed it, and I believe that's what he wants to do with us. We want to taste and see the fruit of the kingdom of God, and we want to taste that it's good. And if you've tasted it, you've tasted that it's good. When you followed that pattern, when you followed that decision of Christ to voluntarily die on the cross, when you followed that for the sake of others, you've tasted and seen fruit, haven't you? Every time you do it, you taste and see fruit. Tastes good, you want to do it again. You want to give more, you want to sacrifice more, you want to be more generous, you want to serve more, you want to care more. You constantly want to do that because it does taste good. You get moments of it and then you get distracted so easily. We all do, don't we? But it's so good. And God's calling us to do that and to be that for the sake of this city. Now, fasting. How does this all connect to fasting? Fasting, simply put, is an embodiment of this belief. It's not just to say with our mouth. Protestants were really good at saying with our mouth. We're really terrible at doing anything about it, aren't we? It's easier that way. Fasting, simply put, is an embodiment of the belief. It's not just saying with our mouth, but modeling with our bodies that we are a living sacrifice. That's what fasting is. It is to practice what we preach about putting God before our most basic desire, like what to eat today. It's putting to death the flesh in order to be alive to Christ. It is starving the flesh for the purpose, the stated purpose of seeking righteousness. It's saying no to the temporal in order to say yes to the eternal. That's what fasting is. It's not the only way to do that. There are countless ways to do that. It's just one of many ways and a very common historical way the church has done that. That's why we are aiming at practicing that to see if maybe there's a little bit of eternal life on the other side of choosing to consecrate our bodies for the sake of seeking the kingdom. So this week I invite you to discover the lost art of consecration. The lost art of decidedly giving up a part of your body, a part of your life that isn't producing fruit or potentially worse is leading to death, I invite you to say yes to life to the full and the fruit that comes with the kingdom of God by saying no to yourself, to your desire, your immediate desire, in some kind of way. That's the invitation. And I think if we all fumble our way through that a little bit this week, I think the presence of God will be more manifest in this body in weeks to come. I just, that's, that's the thing. And if you're here this morning and you want to know more about this radical idea of taking up your cross, I'm saying a lot of things assuming that you have some Christian background, but I shouldn't assume that. A bunch of this may have sounded like crazy stuff to you. You may be thinking, you are exactly what I thought, which is a bunch of crazy talking religious folk. I promise you, spend some time together and you'll realize that you're just as crazy. So welcome to the family and also that there's so much humanity in this. I think there's something for you there. And if you really don't understand what it means for one time in your life to say yes to Jesus in order to say no to the flesh, the idea of baptism, the idea of, of, of getting up and stating this is the direction I'm going to live my life even though I'm going to fumble my way through it, I would love to have that conversation with you and walk you through that pathway because it's a beautiful one. And I believe that eternal life in the kingdom of God is on the other side of it.